Now, let me begin with an apology, an apology on behalf of the church, really, because I did have a PowerPoint presentation, uh, but something has gone amiss. We can't work out what it is. It's showing up beautifully on my uh, screen here on the computer, but it's not coming up there. So I'm going to divide you into different groups, and at certain stages you'll get up and act the part which I was going to put on the slide. The first slide was going to be of a cart horse being flogged on a street, and I don't know who... Steve, would you like to come forward? <laughs> no, I'm sorry about that, uh, but I, I can certainly get on without it, but I, I realize for you it's certainly much uh, easier to follow when there are uh, images. Well, I wanted to start with an incident which occurred in January the 3rd, on January the 3rd of 1889, in Turin. We are almost certain this actually happened. I suppose we fall short of absolute certainty. The scene is the street in Turin, the Piazzo Carlo Alberto, where a cab horse is being flogged ruthlessly. A man is standing, watching, suddenly rushes forward, puts his arms around the neck of the horse, and collapses, sobbing bitterly, and never recovers sanity. That is Friedrich Nietzsche, as you can imagine. Nietzsche, who had spent years, as a matter of fact, talking about the fact that we must overcome compassion. Compassion is a Christian virtue, and it stinks, as far as Nietzsche is concerned. Having written this, it wasn't just a private thought, having written this, he sees this horse being flogged, and that's what happens. He never recovered his sanity. For 11 years, he was in a state of mental collapse, deteriorating, his sister, two years younger than himself, who'd gone out to Paraguay with her husband, who had committed suicide at some stage, they'd gone out there to set up a kind of new fascist, fascist colony in Paraguay. His sister came back to look after him, and she began, apparently, to show people into his room as he lay there, completely motionless and silent largely motionless, completely silent. And she suggested to people that this was a god deep in thought. And people come and look at him. He died in 1900 as his reputation began to grow all through Europe. Elizabeth, his sister, uh, linked Nietzsche's name with Nazism. And Hitler attended her funeral when she died in 1935. What is remarkable about the incident in Turin was not simply the incident itself, but the fact that Nietzsche had been reading Dostoevsky. Some of you here will probably be familiar with Dostoevsky's work. Any of you who wonder read Crime and Punishment? Some of you probably have. Well, you may remember the Crime and Punishment. There's an incident where someone's having a dream of himself as a child. He remembers himself as a child in the dream, or imagines himself as a child, and in the dream, a cart horse is being thrashed 
And the people are saying, as the cart horse breaks down under the weight of the load of wood and hay it's carrying, the people say, go on, go on, thrash, thrash. And the thrashing goes on viciously with a whip and then with a crowbar until the horse is killed. And the little boy in the dream rushes forward and embraces the horse and kisses the bloody head of the horse. Papa, Papa, why did they kill the horse? And then he goes with little fists, he goes for the cab driver. Nietzsche had read that. He was familiar with Dostoevsky, admired Dostoevsky. And here in real life, Nietzsche played out the scene for real and never recovered sanity. Now, I was going to quote to this stage, and I think I can find quickly the words which are going to come up on screen. I was going to quote these words from Nietzsche. Yes, here they are. Not long before all this, Nietzsche had said this. Wherever there are walls, I shall inscribe this eternal accusation against Christianity upon them. I can write in letters which make even the blind see. I call Christianity the one great curse, the one great intrinsic depravity, the one great instinct for revenge for which no expedient is sufficiently poisonous, secret, subterranean, petty. I call Christianity the one immortal blemish of humankind. The instinct for revenge is a revenge against reality, which Nietzsche thinks Christianity is taking. And I want to unpack that, of course, this evening. How had Nietzsche got to this point? Well, Nietzsche was born in 1844. Uh, His father died before he was five years old. Sometimes in biographies it says that Nietzsche was five. Actually, he wasn't quite five because he was born later in the year, so people don't realize sometimes. He wasn't quite five when his father died. His father was a Lutheran pastor, and Nietzsche was very, very fond of his father. And the death, as you'd expect, had a profound effect on him. You would expect, of course, the death of a father to have that effect in child. Some of you have gone through it. But it lingered in a particularly strong and poignant form uh, in the case of Nietzsche. Years and years afterwards, he could still hear the tolling of the bells calling people to the funeral service. He was born near Leipzig, as a matter of fact, and although very often it's the death of his father that's picked out when people described his, describe his childhood. Actually, a number of other people died too. A younger sibling in infancy, an aunt, a grandmother, and all this seemed to have hit Nietzsche very, very hard. He was, from therefore, a Christian background. Indeed, the father, as I said, was a Lutheran pastor. He went off to school, not far from Leipzig, a very prestigious school in those days, uh, with a tremendous reputation for teaching the classics, the literature and language of Greece and Rome. And Nietzsche took to this like a fish to water. He was a brilliant classical scholar, eventually became a professor of classics very young. And he entered this um, world of classical delight. And during his school years, he began to lose his faith. 
We don't know precisely what caused that. We know there are a number of things, but what we can't do actually is to pin down with any certainty which of these was the most important. There's no doubt about it that Nietzsche was tormented by the problem of suffering and the goodness of God. He was also very abreast of the developments in the critical study of the Bible, the historical critical study of the Bible for some time in Germany and elsewhere. The reliability of the Bible had been questioned, and Nietzsche was very much up on that scholarship, so he couldn't simply take the Bible as it stood by any means. He was heir to traditions which had grown up since the 18th century, where Christianity is regarded as lacking any rational basis, all that. But I think there was a push, a push factor away from Christianity. There was a pull factor as well, because he delighted in the classical world, a world of freedom, as he saw it, of joy, of serenity, of independence. The great heroes of Greece and Rome do not bow down to God or Jesus of Nazareth. And what heroes they are. And what a tragedy that that once flourishing culture has gone. It remains only in the memory, only in history books. Why is it gone? Christianity. To a large extent, Christianity has taken things over in the West. Christianity, where humans are supposed to grovel submissively before God and have faith rather than reason. Christianity with its wishful thinking and belief in life after death. That, replacing the grandeur of Greece and Rome, it's intolerable. Nietzsche came to express these things strongly later, but that was the movement that seems to have uh, animated a large part of his anti-Christianity in the early years. He went to Bonn to study uh, theology and uh, philology, classical philology, classical languages. Then to Leipzig to do a doctorate in classical philology. And he earned his doctorate without going through the usual examinations. Pretty extraordinary within the German system to be able to get a doctorate on the basis of certain things he had done rather than the actual statutory examinations required for it. But he did. And he was appointed to a chair in Basel, Switzerland. Well, first of all, he's assistant professor, then full professor in Basel, Switzerland, in classical philology. And he was only 24, 25 when he was appointed to teach in Basel. He would have been 25 by the time he had the actual professorship. By this time, his atheism was established to all appearances. Very clearly. I mean, you've got to distinguish in these things between a move away from Christianity and a positive embrace of atheism. So it's, it's very hard to say at what point the move away from Christianity becomes positive atheism. Uh, and uh, anyway, the, the fact is that by the time he reached his teaching position, he was a convinced atheist. But what if that classical world is not gone forever. What if, as a matter of fact, it can be resurrected? What if that's possible? Now, at this stage, 
I have images. And believe me, for anyone as untechnological as myself to have images coming up of this kind would be rather remarkable anyway. So you just have to believe me. But you can listen instead. Imagine an opera house in front of you. The people are beginning to fill it up very slowly. It is a magnificent opera house in Germany, a place called Bayreuth. There's a deep pit for the orchestra. You don't see the orchestra, you just hear the music. The music rises from the pit. And this music is going to launch a revolution. So you've got rid of Christianity. What's left now? Maybe the human spirit can rise up. I regret having to stop it there. I was beginning to enjoy hamming it up a little bit. Well, some of you will know what that was. That was Wagner, the prelude to Tristan and Isolde. And the point is that when Nietzsche went to his professorship in Basel, he was going there at a time when Wagner was making a huge mark on the musical scene in Europe. And Wagner had grandiose ambitions. Well, one grandiose ambition. He wanted to produce some sort of cultural revival in Germany, cultural renewal. He wanted to pleat together 
the different strands of art. Gesamtkunstwerk, one single work which joins together the different arts and somehow inspire cultural renewal in Germany on the basis, in part, of retrieving the classical world. And Nietzsche was smitten by this. When, when Nietzsche heard that music first, he wasn't impressed. Then, on another hearing, he was completely overcome by it. Prelude, as I say, to Tristan is older, the opera. But Wagner was living not too far away. And he got to know Nietzsche. Nietzsche got to know him. About the same age as Nietzsche's father. Apparently even looked like Nietzsche's father. Well, you can see what's going to follow. He was enamored of Wagner. And he wanted to join Wagner in this uh, tremendous enterprise of cultural renewal. In fact, Nietzsche was ready to give up at some stage, contemplated giving up his chair in order to raise funds for this. Now, 1872, the cornerstone of the Feschpiel House, the opera house in Bayreuth, in Bavaria, was laid. Nietzsche was there. 1876, the opera house itself was opened. And Nietzsche in 1872 had this great hope, as did Wagner, following Wagner, for some tremendous movement in Germany spreading throughout Europe which really replaces the old religions. But Nietzsche became disillusioned. Personal problems with Wagner. Most people had personal problems with Wagner. Nietzsche was no exception. And in 1876, when the Bayreuth uh, house was opened, people turning up to it, far from being people who were the elite, the cream of society, the people who were there for cultural renewal, some of those were there, but many people turned up just to see what was going on, and uh, there were a number of women who were hoping to make quite a bit of money uh, from, well, what would you use men for in that kind of situation, men who were all excited and you know, doing this, that, and the other, and, well, the women flocked there to take advantage of them, and men took advantage of them, and outrageous prices were being apparently uh, offered for or, or, or set up for the uh, food and for the accommodation and all those things. It was a mess. Nietzsche was disgusted, turned his back on it. Before long, he himself had to take a year's leave of absence because of illness. He was persistently ill throughout his life. Within about three years after that, 1879, he'd been pensioned off entirely, and he spent the rest of his time just wandering around Europe from place to place, officially pensioned off from his position in Basel. And it's really after he turns his back on Wagner that the anti-Christian literature really sets in in a big way. He's already been disillusioned with Christianity. He was hopeful that Wagner could do something and bring something new to Europe, and now you've got nothing, you're bitter. And as a result, Nietzsche began to settle down to some serious anti-Christian literature. What then impelled Nietzsche 
not in the sense of what motivated him, what intellectually impelled him to launch his attack on Christianity? What was his problem? Now, in part, his problem with Christianity was a problem that would have been familiar to many people in his time. It wasn't particularly distinctive. Let me read out to you this, practically his first major explicit anti-Christian tirade. When on a Sunday morning we hear the bells ringing, we ask ourselves, is it possible? This is going on because of Jew crucified 2,000 years ago who said he was the son of God? The proof of such an assertion is lacking. In the context of our age, the Christian religion is certainly a piece of antiquity intruding out of distant ages past. And that the above-mentioned assertion is believed while one is otherwise so rigorous in the testing of other claims, is perhaps the most ancient piece of this inheritance, actually to believe he's the son of God. Isn't it amazing? People believe that when in other paths of life they will test things. A God who begets children on a mortal woman? A sage, this would be Jesus, who calls upon us no longer to work, no longer to sit in judgment, but to heed the signs of the imminent end of the world? A justice which accepts, sorry, that's Apostle Paul, a justice which accepts an innocent man as a substitute sacrifice? Someone who bids his disciples drink his blood? Prayers for miraculous interventions? Sin perpetrated against a God, atoned for by a God? Fear of a beyond to which death is the gateway? The figure of the cross as a symbol in an age which no longer knows the meaning and shame of the cross? How gruesomely all this is wafted to us as if out of the grave of a primeval past. Can one believe the things of this sort are still believed in? Do you believe them in Fitzroy? Incredible. Your third millennium, this is 19th century. Haven't you got over it yet? Now, that's a typical rationalistic line of objection to Christianity, that is, Christianity's claims don't stand the most elementary testing by reason. But there's something deeper. What really drives Nietzsche is his distaste for the way Christianity regards humanity. It crushes humanity. Christianity is profoundly anti-human. Because what you're supposed to do is grovel for your sins, tear-stained, calling on this lovely little God to forgive you. You're a terrible little worm, that's what you are. That is sickening. You, you can feel Nietzsche vomit sometimes as he's writing some of this stuff. Christianity sets itself up, says Nietzsche, against everything that is natural. The natural drives you and I have the natural affections, natural desires, all natural about us, Christianity says, ugh, ugly, sinful, naughty, bad. That's Christianity. And that's what Nietzsche hates about it more than anything. Christian morality sets up divisions within yourself. Because he doesn't believe in God, then the moral standards that you have must come from yourselves. So you oppress yourselves with these standards. You, with all your natural drives and so forth and feelings, you, you set up a standard up there somewhere, and then you can't live with it. 
you're pressed down by guilt. You've created it yourself. You've created this oppressive law believing there's a God, but you've created it. You've divided yourself. Your natural self is now imposed on by a moral scheme of your own creation. Now, Nietzsche says our goal must be this. We have got rid of belief in God. No serious people believe in God anymore for reasons such as those I've read out. But now we've got to get rid of Christian morality because you can't actually retain Christian morality if you don't retain belief in God as well. There's no logic to it. The English think they can. The English decent people that they are, the English think that you can do away with religion and retain objective morality. George Eliot, the author, she thinks like that, says Nietzsche. He says you can't. If God is gone, everything is gone. It was said about Buddha that after his death, his shadow remained on the cave where he dwelt. He died, but his shadow stayed. And uh, Nietzsche says that's how it is in Christianity. God is dead. All knowledgeable people know that God is dead, but his shadow lingers on. What's the shadow? Christian morality. What people haven't woken up to is just how big a thing this death of God is. This is a famous passage. Some of you will know it from Nietzsche. wrote this in the 1870s. Haven't you heard, says Nietzsche, of that madman who in the bright morning lit a lantern and ran around the marketplace crying incessantly, I'm looking for God, I'm looking for God. Since many of those who did not believe in God were standing around together just then, he caused great laughter. Has he been lost then, asked one. Did he lose his way like a child, asked another. Or is he hiding? Is he afraid of us? Has he gone to sea, emigrated? Thus they shouted and laughed, one interrupting the other. The madman jumped into their midst and pierced them with his eyes. Where is God? He cried. I'll tell you. We have killed him. You and I. We are all his murderers. But how did we do this? How were we able to drink up the sea? Who gave us the sponge to wipe away the entire horizon? What were we doing when we unchained this earth from its sun? Where is it moving to now? Where are we moving to? Away from all suns. Are we not continually falling? And backwards, sidewards, forwards in all directions. Is there still an up and a down? Aren't we straying as though through infinite nothing? Isn't empty space breathing in us? At us, sorry, hasn't it got colder? Isn't night and more night coming again and again? Don't lanterns have to be lit in the morning? Do we still hear nothing of the noise of the grave diggers who are burying God? Do we still smell nothing of the divine decomposition? Gods, too, decompose. God is dead. God remains dead, and we have killed him. How can we console ourselves, the murderers of all murderers? The holiest and the mightiest thing the world has ever possessed has bled to death under our knives. Who will wipe this blood from us? With what water could we clean ourselves? What festivals of atonement, what holy games will we have to invent for ourselves? 
Is the magnitude of this deed not too great for us? Do we not ourselves have to become gods merely to appear worthy of it? There was never a greater deed, and whoever is born after us will, on account of this deed, belong to a higher history than all history up to now. That's the death of God. The people are silent. So the madman throws his lantern to the ground, shattering it to pieces. I come too early, he then said. This is Nietzsche talking about himself, of course. I come too early, he said. My time is not yet. Nietzsche, in the voice of the madman here. This tremendous event is still on its way, wandering. It has not yet reached the ears of men. This deed is still more remote to them than the remotest stars, and yet they've done it themselves. It is still recounted how on the same day the madman forced his way into several churches and there started singing his requiem to the eternal God. Led out and called to account, he is said always to have replied nothing but, what then are these churches now, if not the tombs and sepulchres of God? In other words, people are atheistic, but they have no idea of the significance of that. Everything now is collapsing. What I find significant is, you know, at one stage, um, if you said to people, if belief in God goes, objective morality goes as well, they would have mocked you, and still some will. And still some will say, of course you can have objective morality without belief in God. But a number of people have changed their minds on this over the years and believe that Nietzsche was right. That Nietzsche was right that logically, once this belief goes, logically, there's no foundation for anything objective anymore. I'm not saying whether he's right or wrong. All I'm saying is that a number of people have, uh, over, the, over the decades effectively, have begun to shift their cast of mind in a Nietzschean direction. I can, uh, I can document that. So, what remains? Well, what remains is the hope that just a few people, the elite, not pathetic rabble such as you have in Fitzroy, including myself, not pathetic folks like us, but that a few people with enough intellectual power, with enough moral courage, will be able to create new values. That's what's needed. Ordinary people won't. They are pathetic anyway. Let them go their pathetic, herd-like way. But there are a few who might be able to do it. And Nietzsche at one stage gets lyrical here. He says, you know, who can do this? Ah, says Nietzsche, one day he will come. The great redeemer uses that language. The figure who Nietzsche sets up here, though it's not pervasive in his literature, but it's found in the central book he wrote, Thus Spoke Zarathustra. The figure he sets up here is the figure sometimes translated as Superman. That's, that's an unfortunate translation. It means the man who overcomes. And man really means man, I think. It's, it's a masculine way of thinking uh, that Nietzsche has here. There will be someone who will be super in the sense of overcoming, someone who will create new values, who will smash the old law tables, 
and create new ones. And you see, the imagery smashing the old law tables, that's Moses coming down from the hill. In fact, you find throughout Nietzsche a lot of biblical resonances. And it's interesting that Nietzsche scholars who aren't used to the Bible are missing a lot of what he says. But Nietzsche knew his Bible very, very well. Even that phrase I read out to you earlier, my time is not yet. Actually, it echoes John's gospel. My time has not yet come. The wording is not exactly as it is in the German Bible, but that's the echo, all right. So what Nietzsche is saying is we're going to smash the old tables and create new ones. But only a few have courage to do that. And that's the point. You've got to be creative. Since there is no objective morality, you have to create your own values. But Nietzsche actually comes to a particularly dramatic expression of this. And it goes under the name the thought of the eternal return or the eternal recurrence of the same. Nietzsche claims that everything that has happened will happen again. Now, when people hear that, and in a moment I'll explain its connection with the new values and creation, when people hear that, they think he can't have really meant that. And scholars argue about whether he literally did believe that everything that had been would happen again. Some indication he did believe that. He wanted to to study uh, physics, actually. He wanted to spend some time studying physics in Vienna. And surely he was on the trail of the physics of eternal return. But maybe he didn't believe it literally. Maybe it was a metaphor for something. So what is it a metaphor for? Before I say that, I mean, the passage in which he sets this up is incredibly dramatic. This is from Thus Spoke Zarathustra. And here is Zarathustra, the figure of Zarathustra, which is, who is kind of Nietzsche-like figure, Nietzsche as he'd like to be. He writes like this. This is, of course, uh, fantasy. It's a kind of Nietzschean Bible, a kind of myth which he's devising. Lately I walked gloomily through deathly grey twilights, gloomily and sternly with compressed lips. A path that mounted defiantly through boulders and rubble, a wicked, solitary path that bush or plant no longer cheered, a mountain path crunched under my foot's defiance. I'm skipping bits of it. I climbed and I climbed. I dreamed, I thought, but everything oppressed me. I was like a sick man, wearied by his sore torment and reawakened from sleep by a worse dream. And accompanying him, there is, uh, the word used in usual translations is a dwarf, a figure that seems to be on his shoulder, chattering away to him all the time, a lot of the time. Then Nietzsche climbs high and sat down on a stone, but he says, sorry, Zarathustra climbs high, This this is Zarathustra, but a gateway stood just where we halted, Behold this gateway dwarf, I said. It has two aspects. Two paths come here together. No one has ever reached their end. This long lane behind us goes on for an eternity. That long lane ahead of us, there is another eternity. From this gateway, this moment, 
A long eternal lane runs back, and eternity, and eternity lies behind us. Must not all things that can run have already run along this lane? Must not all things that can happen have already happened, been done, run past? And have we not been here before, dwarf? And this slow spider that creeps along in the moonlight and this moonlight itself, and you and I at this gateway whispering together, whispering of eternal things, must we not all have been here before? Then he hears a dog howling. Have I ever heard a dog howling that way? My thoughts ran back. Yes, when I was a child. It seems as though Nietzsche was alerted to the death of his father. His father fell off a horse, it seems, by the howling of the dog. Yes, he says, in the middle of thus spoke Zarathustra, when I was a child I heard this. And I saw the dog bristling, its head raised, trembling still midnight. And then I saw a man lying. Now, we can't be absolutely sure. That looks like a recollection from childhood. But what is the point of it? Well... The point Nietzsche wants to make is this. You must live your life, so we'll put it now in prose, away from the dramatic poetry of Thus Spake Zarathustra. You must live your life as though if this life were given to you eternally to live, if you had to live this life a million, trillion times over eternally, you would still live it this way. Because that's the only way to break this horrible Christian doctrine of the need for forgiveness. As long as Christianity talks about forgiveness, it's got you. Because if forgiveness enters into it, you've got to repent in some way. And Christianity is this genius for ferreting out sins and creating repentance. So you break the power of Christianity by breaking any need for forgiveness and therefore uttering no remorse for anything that has happened to you or that you have done. To put it in prosaic language, which he does later in that book, you must turn every it was into I willed it thus. I might say this is bizarre. How can you will something that happened in your past? Well, I think his way of thinking is this. Now, people do interpret him differently, but for what it's worth, this is my reading of him. I'll give you that for what it's worth. I think what he's saying is this. Nietzsche is saying, look, suppose you are here and now, right here we are in Fitzroy tonight. Supposing I take a decision, whatever's happened to me, not only to accept, but to affirm myself. I am now going to affirm the person whom I am right now. And I'm going to go ahead from there, daily affirming who I am. But you see, who I am depends on what I have been. The person I am now depends on what has happened to me in the past. So if I'm affirming who I am now, I'm affirming my past. I'm owning my past in an act of affirmation. I'm saying I am who I am and therefore I own all that. Now, says Nietzsche, everything's going to happen again and again and again and again. Whether that's a metaphor or they believed it literally, you affirm yourself. Because Christianity is so dangerous. It'll get you with this repentance remorse business. You must not yield to it at that point. That is the high point, I think, of Nietzschean affirmation of anti-Christianity.
Well, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to um, draw to a conclusion here. I want to say three things in response to this. I wonder how you react to it. I look forward to um, questions and comments. I, tonight, I'd much prefer to have been where you are and have heard David Livingston speaking after that excellent lecture last week. But David has very kindly agreed to answer the difficult questions from you tonight. So you'll be able to hear his voice. Easy questions I'll take, hard ones he'll take. Thank you, David. I'm very uh, grateful to you. But I wonder how you respond to Nietzsche here. And of course, there's much more to be said about Nietzsche that I haven't said. Christians, I think, have to think along several lines of response, uh, including uh, dismantling this rationalistic criticism of Christianity. In the end, I don't believe that the, the rational attack on Christianity, picking up those things he talked about earlier in terms of the belief in Jesus, the Son of God, and so forth, I don't believe that rational attack is a very effective one myself. So I'd want to pursue all those, but let me mention three things which I think are important. Firstly, we've got to affirm a strong doctrine of creation because Nietzsche seems to start his thinking about human beings by thinking of them as sinners. But Christianity does not start as thinking about human beings by thinking of them as, as sinners. Pascal, uh, the great um, French thinker of the 17th century, one of the very few Christians Nietzsche admired. Though he thought that Christianity destroyed Pascal in certain ways, he admired his intellect. Pascal said, never tell humans about their greatness without telling them about their sinfulness, but never tell them about their sinfulness without telling them about their greatness. And Nietzsche seems not to have got hold of that dimension of Christianity at all. He starts with Christianity as telling you he's sinful, but the whole presupposition of talk about sin in Scripture, of course, in the Christian tradition, is that we are created by God. The highest God could do, because he can't reproduce himself as God, obviously, so he creates the very highest. Now, in, the, in this connection, the, the intellectual... Um, a challenge of Darwinism, as David would agree, um, has to be taken on. Because for many people, Darwinism has destroyed the possibility of belief in creation and fall. I believe those beliefs uh, can be uh, reinstated easily enough, can, can survive the criticism easily enough. And David indicated how, in the 19th century, a number of people were, were unperturbed, conservative Christians, unperturbed by Darwin on this point. Nietzsche himself, by the way, thought that Darwin got it a bit wrong, uh, Nietzsche thought that, uh, as far as Darwin is concerned, the essence of uh, an organism is self-preservation. But Nietzsche says the essence of any biological organism is not self-preservation, it's the maximization of its own power. He thought that the maximization of power was what we are about. Anyway, um, we have to affirm in strong terms the greatness and goodness of God's creation. I start by thinking of myself as a creature. And that, far from being an indignity, is the highest dignity God can confer on anything or anyone. Secondly, we have to think in terms of morality and moral law in very different terms from the way many people do. The word morality sounds oppressive to many people. Well, the word law sounds oppressive. If I talk about law... 
I think about something usually as something external to myself, imposed on me. But think of a very different use of the word law. Think of the law of gravity. It's not an imposition on this pen that if I drop it, it'll fall to the ground. You'd say it's funny to say it's an imposition. It's just a description of how it works. The law of a fish's existence is water. The law of the bird's existence is air. Anything which has any existence has a law of its existence. No, there can be no existing entity without a law to it. Now, when God, therefore, speaks to us of how we should live, he is informing us about the law of our own nature. He's telling us how we properly tick. We experience it as an imposition, because of our sinfulness, but actually God's objective is not to impose. On the contrary, it's to release, it's to liberate. It's to say, look, this is how you operate, this is how you work. You tell a child not to put the child's hand in the fire, the child says, thinks you're prohibiting it, but you're telling a child, actually, don't put your hand in the fire because the law of the fire is to burn your hand, the law of your flesh is it will be burnt. That is why I'm instructing you not to do this. But morality is thought of as a dirty word uh, and by many people because it's an imposition, getting things the wrong way around. Thirdly, we've, and finally, we have to think in terms not only the truth and the goodness of God, but about the beauty of God as well. In the Middle Ages, people talked about goodness, goodness truth, and beauty. Those are three things that are often put together. We have talked a lot about the truth of God and the goodness of God, and all that's important. But goodness in many people's minds is a kind of moral category, and the word moral sticks in the craw for them. We've got to think in terms of also the beauty of God, because the kind of God Nietzsche is reacting to is not at all beautiful. It's ugly. But we need to think of the ugliest most evil thing we can think of, which is unbearable, really, isn't it? And then we have to say to ourselves, you know the extreme opposite of that. What would be the extreme opposite of an ugly, evil thing? The extreme opposite is God and his beauty. That's the beauty of holiness. Holiness is unutterably beautiful. And it's revealed to us in the face of Jesus Christ. Irenaeus, the church father, said that Jesus Christ is the visible of the Father, and the Father is the invisible of the Son. Jesus Christ, the Son, is the visible of the Father. And the Father is the invisible, what we do not see, of the Son. And to, to overcome this kind of attitude of Nietzsche's which is pervasive in its way, even if it's not as extremely stated. I think we have to grasp firmly creation, law, proper understanding of law, and the beauty of God. Nietzsche said this. With this, I conclude. In the 1870s, he said, it is no longer our reasons that are decisive against Christianity. It is our taste. And I think he speaks... For our time when he speaks those words. Well, thank you for putting up with this without the, uh, uh, the PowerPoint. I hope nonetheless it was uh, interesting and that uh, you'll have plenty of questions, challenges, comments, etc. Thank you.